0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today on Black Box, the story of a man who wanted to understand the brain and ended up building something just as mysterious. Tired of ads barging into
2: your favourite news podcasts?
1: The first time Jeffrey Hinton ran into a scientific problem in the world that he couldn't explain. He was very young.
2: So I remember when I was about five, coming home from school on a bus. It was an old bus with an engine that wasn't very well mounted. So the engine made the whole bus vibrate. And I was sitting on a seat that had some Tough velvet-like material on it, and the seat sloped downwards um, towards the back. And I put a penny, a
1: Brit- an old British penny, on the seat. Instead of sliding down the seat in the direction that gravity should have pulled it, the penny moved up. Like it was breaking the rules of the universe. And
2: I couldn't believe it. So I kept putting the penny on the seat, in different bits of the seat, and it moved uphill. And I knew that was impossible. I didn't know why it was impossible, but it was obviously couldn't happen.
1: If it were me on that bus, I'd have thought, that's weird. And then never thought about it again. But that's not Hinton.
2: When you see something like that, when you see something that, according to your current model of the world, couldn't happen, some people say, oh, well, you know, the world's a complicated place. Who knows? And other people say, I have to understand why
1: that's going on. That shouldn't be. Why is that happening? I have to understand it. When he was much older, he finally cracked it. It was complicated. Something to do with the fibres of the material on the bus seat. But whatever. The point is, he didn't stop thinking about it for like a decade. You were thinking about this for years after you were five years old until you figured out exactly how it worked.
2: I had it in the back of my mind as a puzzle. It's something that had to be sorted out sometime. And I can't let go of things like that. I'm just, I just get totally obsessed with things like that and how the brain works with one of those things.
1: Jeffrey Hinton is one of the pioneers of artificial intelligence.
3: Jeffrey Hinton is known as a godfather. The
1: godfather. The godfather
3: of of artificial artificial intelligence. intelligence.
1: A technology that's being compared to the invention of railroads, of electricity of the nuclear bomb. This
0: is bigger than climate change, way bigger than COVID. AI is one of the most profound things we are working on humanity.
1: Uh, and you and I are living through the unique moment when it collides with humanity for the first time.
0: It's the most existential debate and challenge humanity will ever face. This is
1: a series about that collision. Starting with the story of the man who did maybe more than anybody to get us here, who spent his entire career on the fringes, working on something most scientists thought was a fantasy, until the world sat up and realised it was going to change everything. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. This is Black Box, Episode 1, The Connectionists.
2: the subject of our program today: artificial intelligence.
1: Artificial intelligence is transforming our world. Intelligent creatures
3: on this planet that are not human. It can create almost anything, from coding video games to passing standardized tests. And it can
1: generate full photorealistic or stylized image or whatever. It is smarter than you are.
0: And the race for domination has begun.
1: To understand artificial intelligence, you need to start with the human brain. That's what Geoffrey Hinton was really interested in as a kid growing up in England in the 1960s. By the time he had finished school, scientists had figured out nuclear fission, the structure of DNA. They were sending astronauts into outer space. But when it came to understanding the brain, the thing that made all these incredible things possible, we still only understood the basics. Here's the basic version of the basics. The brain is made up of these cells called neurons. And when we think or move or do pretty much anything, those neurons start firing, like they're talking to each other. But what they're saying and how all that chatter leads to ideas and memory and learning, that was a mystery. Scientists have a name for this kind of thing, where you see what goes in and what comes out, but have no idea what's happening in the middle. They call it a black box. And like with the coin on the bus seat that moved upwards, a young Geoffrey Hinton just couldn't move past that. How could we not know? He had to work it out. After school, he applied to Cambridge. And they
2: accepted me. I think they mainly accepted me because my father had been there. So I think it was,
1: um, I think I was benefiting from white privilege. Hinton treated Cambridge like a hotel buffet. He tried a bit of philosophy, didn't like it. He was a student of architecture for a single day and then dropped it. He studied chemistry, not for him. He knew the question he wanted to answer. He just couldn't find the path that would get him there. He eventually graduated with a degree in experimental psychology and left university behind. He got another job.
2: I became a carpenter. A carpenter? Yes.
1: I wasn't a very good carpenter. In some of the pictures from around this time, Hinton looks younger than his age, which now at 76, he still does. He has the same faint trace of a smile and this single tuft of hair that's sprung loose and runs down his forehead. In the pictures, it's still brown, but when we talk from his house in Canada, it's gone white. It was in this period after university, a kind of intellectual exile, that Hinton encountered a relatively new idea. Like I was saying, the brain is full of these neurons that are constantly pinging with electrical signals, like they're talking to each other. But this new theory said. When those neurons fire at the same time, something really interesting is happening. As they fire together, they wire together. And the more these neurons fire at the same time, the stronger the connection between them becomes. It goes from being a dirt track to a paved road to eventually a major highway. And this process of the connections getting stronger, that's what learning looks like. One example, say you're walking home and an angry dog moves into a house on the next street. In your brain, the neurons that are associated with this street, and the neurons that are associated with fear, start to fire at the same time. And they start to wire together. You learn to fear this street. Equally, if the dog moves away, those neurons don't fire together anymore, and the connection between them withers. And eventually, the feeling of fear you get every time you're on that street, it fades away. And Hinton felt like, this theory, this is what he'd been looking for. So, on the weekends, he'd go to the library, not far from the Guardian office here in London, and start sketching out ideas.
2: Yes, while I was a carpenter, I used to go to the Islington Public Library every Saturday morning and write notes in my notebook
1: about how the brain might work. And he thought... One way to test this idea of how the brain learned would be to build it artificially.
2: I decided to apply to Edinburgh to do artificial intelligence. I thought artificial intelligence would be um, the way forward.
1: Okay, so Geoffrey Hinton is not the first person to have this idea, to build a computer that's modelled on the brain. And just for a minute, I want to tell you about one of those earlier attempts, just to give you a sense of what Hinton was up against. In the 1950s, an American scientist named Frank Rosenblatt built a computer that he called the Perceptron.
0: And I love that name. That's such a science fiction name for something, the Perceptron. This is Michael Waldridge,
1: a computer science professor at Oxford. The perceptron was the first version of the type of AI that we have today, an artificial neural network. Like the brain, it had its own neurons, connected by wires going in a million directions. And for its time, it was amazing.
2: This perceptron is being trained to recognise the difference between males and
1: females. It is something that all of us can do easily, but few of us can explain how. If you showed it enough examples, it could eventually teach itself to identify numbers, tell left from right, or tell the difference between a dog and a
0: cat. After training on lots of examples, it's given new faces it has never seen and is
2: able to successfully distinguish male from female. It has learned.
0: And it was a complete sensation. His work gained a lot of uh, attention in the 1960s. And there was a common phrase at the time to describe these things.
2: Imagine if you can an electronic brain operating at millions of a second speed.
0: People called them electronic brains.
2: I say brain because the new electronic central office will almost think for itself.
1: Journalists came from all over America to interview Rosenblatt. The hype over what these things would one day be able to do was huge and kind of
0: familiar. What really worries me today is what's going to happen to us if machines can think. But the sad truth is, he had extremely inflated expectations. uh, And he made, as is the tradition of AI researchers, some overblown predictions about uh, what it was going to be capable of. And all that buzz around AI,
1: the overselling, the failure to live up to expectations, it led to a backlash.
2: Good evening and welcome
1: to the Royal Institution. Around the time that Hinton was getting into this stuff, there was a debate about AI on British TV. In 1971, the people who hand out research funding asked a maths professor called Sir James Lighthill, one of
2: Britain's most distinguished scientists,
1: to look into the field of artificial intelligence. So Lighthill goes on TV to present his findings. The room is packed with some of the most important scientists in the country.
0: Effective. Always, there may be some people who try to make us think we can see that old general-purpose robot shimmering there on the horizon, but he's a mirage.
1: And. Lighthill is brutal. He basically says, AI doesn't work. It's a waste of time and money.
0: One, one can feel dubious to a very high degree about predictions of a general purpose robot. Well, perhaps uh, this is a good time to leave... And this was the beginning of a period where artificial intelligence was kind of treated like homeopathic medicine, you know, something on the fringes, something with, you know, a questionable scientific uh, basis. And it remained there for really, really a long time. This period came to be known as
1: the AI winter. And that was the world Jeffrey Hinton was entering when he hung up his carpenter's tools and found his way back to university, enrolling this time on one of the few remaining AI courses. An overhyped idea. The stuff of science fiction. But Hinton didn't care. Do you remember, though, when the report came out, the kind of effect that it had on this world that you had started to steep yourself in?
2: It was fairly devastating, particularly for employment opportunities. Um, Basically, the funding dried up and it made life particularly tough for anybody who wanted to get an academic position in Britain doing AI. So by the time I got my PhD, there just weren't any
1: academic positions in AI. And at the time, do you remember how people around you spoke of and and thought of neural networks and their potential?
2: Yes, I do. Um, There was universal agreement that they were rubbish. They told me I had to stop it and do something sensible stop doing this silly stuff, and I um, wanted to carry on doing this silly stuff. I applied for jobs in England, and I couldn't get an interview for a job. So I saw an advertisement for a job in California, and there life was quite different. There there were people who believed there was potential in neural networks, and so I was with people who didn't think what I was doing was nonsense for the sort of first time, and that was wonderful.
0: The modern perceptrons are called neural networks, and the people who build
2: them are a growing movement called connectionists.
1: In California, Hinton joined a small fringe group of psychologists, philosophers, computer scientists who still believed, working quietly for years under the radar.
2: are seeing how much they can get their neural networks to
1: learn. They called themselves the connectionists, Inspired by the idea that first grabbed Hinton back in the 1970s, that the secret to learning was in the way that neurons in the brain made connections, and believing that maybe you could build computers the same way. Not programming them, writing rules line by line, but building a network of artificial neurons. Feeding it information. Letting those neurons fire, form their own connections, and... As those connections form, watching it learn. Pretty soon, they cleared their first big hurdle. The problem with the perceptron was that it was inspired by the brain, but in a really key way, it was nothing like it. In the brain, the neurons are structured in these layers, like a lasagna, and this design is one of those strokes of genius that you see in nature. It seems simple, but layers just make the whole process so much more efficient and powerful. But trying to recreate that structure in a computer program, for a long time, the consensus was it was mathematically impossible. Couldn't be done. Except, throughout the 1970s and 80s, at a few different institutes around the world, a handful of computer scientists, including Geoffrey Hinton, cracked it. How to build a neural network in layers. Nobody outside this tiny world really noticed at the time. But now we can look back and see. They had fired a starting gun. How important was that breakthrough?
3: It was extremely important. And it really opened up all of the abilities that we see in neural networks today.
1: That's Melanie Mitchell. Back then, she was a young computer science student. Now she's a professor at the Santa Fe Institute, and when she was starting out, she was told these neural networks would never go anywhere. But she also remembers watching how, after this breakthrough, the field started to change.
3: There was like a very early project um, that was called NetTalk. I like to go to my grandmother's house, well, because she gives us candy which was a neural network that could take um, text and turn it into speech. It wasn't very good at all compared to what we have today, but um, it, was, it learned that from just from data. There were no rules programmed into it. And so that was seen as like a really interesting kind of advance in the neural network world. He won't stop jumping or in the bathtub. In the bathtub. No, in the crib.
1: Okay. So it wasn't pretty, but it was progress. The neocognitron is a multi-layered neural network consisting of a cascade of many layers of simplified neural cells. In the same year, researchers came up with a way to dramatically improve how neural networks see. Let's draw a numeral 2 on the tablet.
0: From the analysis of the stimulus features, the input pattern is recognised as 2.
2: It would
1: eventually lead to things like being able to unlock your iPhone using your face, to facial recognition software, being able to track you as you walk across a city. But the implications of what they were doing, what this technology might one day mean for privacy, jobs, elections, fake news, back then, it was hard to imagine.
2: We were so far off from being able to produce things that worked well that we didn't worry about that kind of thing.
1: And until quite recently I didn't worry much about those kinds of things. The reason Hinton didn't worry was that back then the machines were still missing two really big things. First was to build a neural network big enough to rival the brain, you'd need huge amounts of computing power. And back then that didn't really exist. Second, it would need a vast amount of training material to learn from. And Where would you ever find trillions of human conversations and messages and pictures all sitting there downloadable in some kind of interconnected network of computers worldwide? It would never happen, right?
0: Imagine a world where every word ever written, every picture ever painted and every film ever shot could be viewed instantly in your home via an information superhighway.
1: But... Throughout the nineties and the two thousands, computer power was growing.
0: Purchasing an airline ticket from home, checking out your bank account.
1: Billions of people were going online.
0: And I found this satellite weather map in there.
1: Uploading thousands of terabytes of information every second.
0: Yeah, you can get news, recipes, and
1: this digital mirror of humanity. The best of us, and the
0: the worst.
2: And
1: after seven decades on the fringes, neural networks, they were starting to break through.
3: Is this real life?
1: Sometimes, with big breakthroughs, there's a precise moment where you can put your finger on where an idea goes from the fringes of science, from labs and academic journals, to the real world. For AI, that moment came in 2012. Okay, that was quite interesting. There's this annual competition for computer scientists called ImageNet. And it's like the picture round at a pub quiz. But instead of you and your mates trying to guess the celebrity, it's specially designed computer programs, trying to identify what they see in thousands of random pictures. Cats, dogs, specific kinds of flowers, whatever. And whoever's computer gets the most right answers, wins. Earlier ImageNet winners had been improving their systems by like a percentage point a year, just this slow grinding progress. But Geoffrey Hinton and two of his grad students, Ilya Sutskiva and Alex Krzyzewski, figured a neural network could do this much better. Ilya was convinced that the techniques we had would
2: actually win this competition, and he really insisted we work on it.
1: So early in 2012, the three of them started building one.
2: Alex was an incredibly good program. He's probably one of the best two programmers I know.
1: In his bedroom at his parents' house in Toronto, Alex spent weeks feeding the network images, watching it make connections in the data, identify patterns, teach itself to distinguish between a Doberman and a Dashhound, a sunflower and a Snapdragon. Alex was pouring hours into it and starting to neglect his work for uni. He actually had an assignment overdue for one of Hinton's classes
2: and he kept putting it off. So I made a deal with him that um, every time he improved the score on ImageNet by 1%, he could put it off for another week. And he managed to put it off for many, many weeks. So in the process of avoiding having to write this paper, he did what was probably the most influential piece of research this century.
1: By autumn, Alex's system is ready. They enter the ImageNet contest, and two days later, an email arrives with the results. They've won by double figures. The neural network has blown the competition away.
0: My name is Alex Krojewski. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you about some of this work that we did with um,
1: some of my awesome collaborators, Ilya Sutskever and Jeff Hinton. Um, in classifying the ImageNet database with pretty basic convolutional neural nets. Here's Alex talking about their breakthrough at the University of Toronto in a presentation at the end of that
0: year. Into the into this contest and we got a much better result than the other teams. It's pretty big for the size, for the type of model that you can train in your bedroom. He's in
1: a t-shirt and a hoodie. It's too big for him. He clearly doesn't enjoy the limelight. You'd have no idea the paper he's telling you about. It just changed the trajectory of computer science. ...linear classification. And, oh, that's it. That's all I have. But people who knew this world, they got it. If a neural network could teach itself to identify virtually anything in a picture, what else could it do?
3: I think everybody kind of woke up and said, wait, this is really interesting, there's something new going on here.
1: Among the people who sat up and started paying attention were executives at some of the richest tech companies on the planet. Now, they saw the potential. They saw how much money could be made. And they embarked on a race to recruit some of the best minds in neural networks – and they knew exactly who to talk to.
2: So fairly early on, I got mail from Microsoft and then I got mail from Baidu, a Chinese company.
1: Jeffrey, Alex and Ilya set up a private company. They were its only three employees and the company and their services were up for sale.
2: I can't remember the precise but I think I, I wanted to get an estimate from them of how much we were worth. So I said, I said something like, um, so how much would you be willing to pay? Would it be in, in the region of $10 million? And um, they
1: said yes. There were four potential buyers, Microsoft, Google, the Chinese company Baidu, and a little-known lab based in London called DeepMind. But Jeffrey is a scientist, not a businessman, and he'd never had to host a bidding war between billion-dollar companies. So he started asking around for advice. The
2: advice I got was you could hire a professional negotiator and you'll get a good price, but they'll all hate you at the end. Um, Or you could have an auction. So I set up an auction. It was a bit unconventional.
1: This auction coincided with one of the big annual events for neural network researchers. It was happening on the Southern shore of Lake Tahoe in America.
2: We were actually in a casino. So on the ground floor, There were all these machines ringing big bells whenever someone won $25,000. And all these grey people smoking and pulling levers of slot machines, sort of like pigeons in boxes.
1: The casino was offering the conference organisers cheap rooms. The assumption is you'll gamble a bit while you're there and they'll make some of the money back. Not a good bet when you're dealing with Jeffrey Hinton and his colleagues.
2: I think the casino got totally fed up with the conference after a while because they had the people they least wanted. They had a whole bunch of people who knew a lot about statistics and had much more sense than to go anywhere near a slot machine or a card table.
1: So, with the gamblers standing around on the ground floor, waiting for their payday, Jeffrey Hinton was upstairs in his hotel room, getting his.
2: So, we did the auction by Gmail... And they would just keep bidding, and you had to raise by at least a million. And to begin with, there was an hour between bids. Later on, when it was dragging on, um, although it's hardly, it's not really dragging on if you keep getting an extra million every hour, um, <laughs> we, we reduced it to half an hour, I think. You had to bid within half an hour.
1: The bids come in over several days. Deep DeepMind drops out first 10 million, 15. 20 million, then Microsoft drops out too.
2: So then there were just two bidders left. Google and Baidu. But once we got to 44 million, I was much more concerned about who we worked for than the money. The value of money, when you have a lot of it, is basically logarithmic. You know, each time you double it, you get a little bit happier. And so getting more money wasn't the main point. So we simply told Baidu that Google had made it as an offer
1: we couldn't refuse and the auction was over. $44 million. At the time, it seemed like crazy money for an idea that had often struggled to attract tiny research grants. But some of the latest estimates reckon by the end of this decade, the value of technology powered by neural networks is going to be worth about $15 trillion. That's bigger than the economies of the UK, France, Italy, Brazil, Russia, and Canada combined. Built-off technology pioneered in Hinton's small lab at the University of Toronto and a few other places around the world. Had you understood before then the amount of money that was going to be tied up in the discoveries that you and others were working on?
2: No. In fact, when the companies came knocking... We had absolutely no idea of what we were worth. We thought we might be worth a million dollars. We had no idea that um, retrospectively, when we, me and Alex, nearly sold ourselves to Google for forty-four million dollars, we had no idea they would later come to think of that
1: as cheap. Coming up, an entity that cannot be defeated. Once Jeffrey Hinton joined Google, and other companies got in on the action too, artificial intelligence took massive strides. Now, it was being supercharged by big tech. As the money came pouring in, the networks got much bigger. More neurons, more connections, a little more like the brain. In some ways, they were starting to rival human intelligence, and to exceed it. In 2016, that London-based AI lab, DeepMind, which by now had been acquired by Google, announced to the world that it had achieved a milestone. It had built a neural network that it said had mastered this old Chinese board game called Go. And it bet $1 million that its system could defeat the undisputed world champion, the Michael Jordan of Go, this Korean master called Lee Sedol. Go is played on a square grid with black and white stones. The goal is to surround your enemy's territory. It's pretty easy to learn, but it's considered maybe the most complex board game ever invented. There are so many possible combinations. In fact, more than the known number of atoms in the universe. It means that no person and no computer can calculate every possibility. The top human players, like Lisa Dole, play so many games that they build up this kind of intuition they know what a good move looks like, but they can't really say why. DeepMind's AI system was called AlphaGo. It had been fed the records of 100,000 human matches. It then played itself millions of times, trying to learn what nobody could possibly program into it. Instinct. Instinct.
2: Good afternoon. I am today's referee. The match will be in Chinese rules with seven...
1: As the match started, about 200 million people around the world were tuning in. Michael Waldridge
0: was among them. And I have to say, I thought maybe the machine would turn in a creditable attempt, but I watched it quite closely. I didn't think that it was going to win. It won't be
2: a wasted moment for you. It's going to be worth it. History is really being made here, I think. Uh, can yeah. we Can we guarantee that?
0: They're playing five
1: games in five days. Lee Sedol, dressed in a dark jacket, stares at the board with this burning intensity. And he's sitting opposite an engineer from DeepMind, calmly taking instructions from AlphaGo. The first game is close. Well, that's... A that's,
2: uh, computer program has just beaten the nine-dollar wow. professional. Yeah, once. But
1: AlphaGo wins, which, on its own, makes history. But it's day two, the 37th move of the second match. When we get a glimpse over the horizon
0: alpha go makes a move Ooh. that's a very that's Ooh. a very surprising move
1: <laughs> i thought i thought it was i thought it was a mistake
0: it's not behaving as a human player would and the human observers the human expert go players are really startled it looks like a really really surprising move to make
2: interesting so so uh, AlphaGo played this move, which I want to hear more about in a second, but...
0: And they don't understand it. They're like, what, what is going on here? It's a very surprising move. It's loop. a surprising move.
1: When Lee sees this, he completely leans back in his chair with this look of just wonder on his face. He knows he's lost.
2: And AlphaGo takes down
1: mm-hmm. Lee Sedol.
2: Yeah, I was sort of expecting Lee Sedol to win, actually. Yeah.
1: Humans have been playing Go for 4,000 years. And somewhere in its training, AlphaGo saw something we haven't. It wasn't just copying humans. It was innovating. Wired magazine, in its write-up of the match, quotes another Go champion who's watching. And this move leaves him speechless for a few minutes. And then he understands what's happened. And he says, it's beautiful. He keeps repeating that word, beautiful. And yeah, Go is just a game. But this moment raised the possibility that if neural networks could see things invisible to us, make connections we've never been able to make in a game with billions of possibilities. What might they one day be able to do when we turn them on the world? Maybe they could find patterns in our biology that help to cure diseases or in physics that unlock new sources of fuel that don't pollute the planet, or things in our psychology, what makes us tick, how we can be manipulated. In the end, AlphaGo beat
0: Lee Sedol four games to one. Lee managed to win one, and the joke at the time was that it's because AlphaGo felt sorry for him and uh, had to let him win at least one. And I have to say- Within a year of these matches, Sadol retired from Go.
1: He said in an interview later that even if he becomes the best player who ever existed, now he knows, in his words, there is an entity that cannot be defeated. Here's the bit about this story that I just can't shake. If you asked AlphaGo why it made the moves it did, it wouldn't be able to tell you. Just like a human, its calculations happened somewhere deep in its network of millions of neurons, and we only see the results. And Melanie Mitchell told me, actually, that's true of all AI today that the smartest computer scientists in the world have no idea what these things are thinking. They're just too complex.
3: And so the scale is just unimaginable. This how large they are and how these things are all interacting with each other. So it's, it's perhaps the most complex software systems that we've ever seen. And humans didn't explicitly program in their knowledge. The knowledge was gleaned from this self-supervised learning that they did and it's hard for us to see, to 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 look, look under the hood of these systems and see how you know how they're doing what they do so so they are in some sense black boxes kind of roughly analogous to our brains
1: and i think that's pretty ironic given where this story started with jeffrey hinton frank rosenblatt so many other scientists and philosophers and psychologists wanting to understand the human brain. And in that, they actually failed. In 2024, the brain is still largely a mystery to us. The machines that Hinton built haven't answered his question. Instead, he created another intelligence, one that as it grew more powerful became harder and harder for us to comprehend trying to understand one black box we created another
3: The man widely seen as the godfather of artificial intelligence has quit his job at Google warning of the dangers
2: of
0: AI Dr Geoffrey Hinton, Hinton Geoffrey Hinton considéré <inaudible> comme <considered inaudible> l'un des pionniers de l'intelligence artificielle a déclaré avoir quitté Google
1: Last year, Jeffrey Hinton quit Google. He quit to speak freely and to raise awareness of the
0: risk. He says that AI systems may be more intelligent than we know, and there's a chance the machines could take over. (laughs) I (laughs) heard the dude that, the old dude that created AI, talking about this is not safe because the AI's got their own minds. I'm like, is we in a fucking movie right now or what?
1: He had seen things in the neural networks that started to worry him. We'll get to those. But the technology he godfathered into existence isn't going away. This time we're living through right now is unique. A collision between two mysterious intelligences. Two black boxes. Human and artificial with unpredictable consequences that are already shaking the foundations of some places, including a small town in southern Spain, where a bunch of kids got their hands on some AI powered software and did something that feels like a warning shot from the future.
0: And as soon as I got home, she told me, Mom, there's something I want to tell you. And she showed me the images.
1: And that town is where we're going next. Thank you to Michael Waldridge. His book is called The Road to Conscious Machines. And Melanie Mitchell. Hers is Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. I really recommend both. Black Box is produced by Alex Atak. The executive producer is Josh Kelly. The commissioning editor is Nicole Jackson. Original music and sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. The music supervisor is Max Sanderson. Editorial support from Caitlin Kenny. Additional production support on this episode from Nicola Alexandru. The next episode of Black Box is out Thursday.
0: This is The Guardian.
1: Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do.
3: It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not
2: afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it.
3: Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world.
0: AI machines, satellite,
3: engine ignition, click here and liftoff Every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.